I'd like to have you turn to the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians. We're going to begin this morning a new series of studies in 1 Corinthians, and there's no place to begin like in the middle. And I'd like to read some verses found in the middle of that chapter, verse 9, 10, and 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. He's not saying that people who engage in any of those activities necessarily will lose their salvation. He's referring to the past actions of the people in this church in Corinth, because he says in verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. This gives us some idea of the nature of the church in Corinth. These were the sort of folks that are to be found in that city and in that church. They're not particularly pious or religious people. They come from very checkered backgrounds. Um, they've had a hard time in life. And yet, Paul says these were the people that God had called to himself. He'd set them apart. He'd set them on a new course in life. And therefore, we can identify with them because uh, most of us are very much like them in many ways. I had a friend once who read this passage to his congregation. And then he asked, how many of you would characterize your life before Christ in this way. Stand up if you, if you can identify yourself this way. And no one moved for a few moments. And then uh, some uh, very small elder, elderly lady stood up and then another person and then a man. And finally about three-fourths of the congregation was standing. And I had another friend who was seated in the congregation for the first time, who had just become a Christian the week before, and he looked around at all these folks and he said, Man, he said, these are my kind of people. And I think that's why we can identify so well with these people in Corinth. They're our kind of people. They're, um, they're, they've been wicked. They've done some dreadful things. And now they're God's people. They have a new course in life. They're still struggling, there's still problems, but they belong to God. Now let's turn back to chapter 1, and I'd like to give you a brief introduction to the book and then look at the first nine chapters of, of the book of 1 Corinthians by way of introduction. If you want to take one of the pew Bibles out of the rack and take a look at the map in the back, uh, I can show you where Corinth is, if you can picture in your mind. Uh, a map of Greece, there's a peninsula just to the south of the main portion of, of Greece that looks like a hand with fingers extended down into the Mediterranean Sea. That's the Peloponnesian Peninsula. The city of Corinth was located on the north side of that peninsula, right next to the uh, Corinthian Isthmus, that narrow uh, neck of land that, that connects the peninsula with the Greek mainland. City of Corinth was located very advantageously. It was a seaport town, as you can and can see. 
They had access to the west through the Adriatic over to Italy and, and on into the Mediterranean. They had another seaport on the east side of that isthmus called Centuria. It's mentioned in Scripture, and that likewise was a seaport, part of the Corinthian uh, seaport complex. And uh, from that seaport, they could trade uh, to the east, to Asia. So this was a seaport town, and like any seaport town, it was wealthy and very cosmopolitan and very wicked. The people of that day had coined a term to Corinthianize meant to eat and drink and fornicate. And uh, while it didn't particularly involve, uh, it didn't particularly concern the people of that time, it does give us an indication that the city of Corinth was far worse than any other city at, at that time, morally speaking. Very wealthy, affluent people, beautiful architecture, large monumental architecture, great structures. There's still today a, a temple to Jupiter, dedicated to Jupiter there. Behind the city is a mountain that's called the Acrocorinth, and on the crest of that mountain was a temple dedicated to Aphrodite. The historians of that period tell us that there were thousands of temple prostitutes that regularly made their way down the mountainside to apply their trade on the, in the streets of, of Corinth. There was institutional crime and vice along with wealth and Affluence. It was sort of classically the, the city you like to visit but not live in. But yet that was where the church in Corinth was located in that setting. And along about 50 A.D., some 20 years after Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, the Apostle Paul came to that city. He was on his second missionary journey, traveled through the northern part of Greece to the cities that we recognize as Thessalonica and then down to Berea and over to Athens and then into Corinth. And as his custom was, he began to teach in the synagogue and instruct the Jewish community there in the things of God until he aroused the anger of, of the religious leaders in Corinth and he was thrown out of the synagogue and he went next door to the house of a man named Titius Crispus who was the head of the synagogue. He was the leading Jew in the city of Corinth, and apparently he had found Jesus Christ as his Messiah, and he opened up his home, and for 18 months, Paul had a home Bible study in the home of, uh, of Crispus, and we know that many people responded to the gospel until uh, through uh, further action by the religious leaders, Paul was forced to leave the city he appointed elders and left behind a healthy, thriving church. And now about 15 years later, from the city of Ephesus, he writes this word of encouragement to the church in Corinth. Now let's uh, begin where Paul does with the introduction, verses 1 through 3. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes our brother to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul identifies himself here with Sosthenes, whom he describes as the brother this name occurs in Acts 18 in the description of the founding of the church there. 
And if we turn to that passage, you'll discover that Sosthenes was the leader of the synagogue who replaced Crispus after his conversion. So apparently Sosthenes, the second leading Jew in the city of uh, Corinth, was led to Christ, and now he's in Ephesus associated with Paul and his ministry there. Paul says something first about himself and then about the church. He, He describes himself as an apostle. That's his calling. Now, the term apostle was not, uh, is not unique to the New Testament. It's a term that was widely used in those days. It refers to anyone who was a special messenger or emissary of a rabbi. The rabbis described their closest followers as apostles, those who are sent out. So the term was not unique. But the position that these men uh, held was unique. They were apostles of Jesus Christ, and that made them something special. They had the same authority that Jesus himself had. And that's why Paul is at at such pains frequently to to authenticate his apostolic uh, choice. It was important to him, not out of pride, but because he knew that he spoke with the authority of Jesus Christ, and therefore people needed to respond, they needed to obey They needed to listen to him. The apostles were certain of that authority. When Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, he says, When you receive my words, you receive them, not as the word of men, but as they really are, the word of God, which is at work among you. So when these men spoke, they spoke as Jesus Christ spoke. They had no lesser authority than than he. Uh, We're all familiar with red-letter Bibles, and there's nothing wrong with red-letter Bibles. Those are just Bibles that indicate the words of Jesus in red letters. Except we may be inclined to think that those words have more authority than the words of the apostles. But that's not true. These men spoke with equal authority with Jesus Christ. And therefore, we can't uh, take their writings lightly. We need to be subject to them. It's not, as I've said before, their writings are not optional. They're a revelation from God, and we need to listen to them. So that's where Paul begins, by establishing his authority, and and this was something he frequently had to do because, as you know, Paul didn't come through the regular channels. He was appointed in a special way by the Lord himself as he was on the road to uh, Damascus. As my father used to say, who lived back in Prohibition days, the churches felt that erroneously felt that Paul was bootlegging the gospel. That is, he was bringing the gospel in through illegitimate channels. But he wasn't. He was an, an apostle with all the authority of the other apostles. So that's the word about himself, and then he delivers the word to the church. He describes them in verse 2 as the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints, by calling with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. His calling is that of an apostle. Their calling is that of saints. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word saint. If you have a a Roman Catholic background, it may evoke one uh, figure. Uh, I don't know what comes to mind. But the word that's translated saints here is a word that's related to the word that's translated sanctified in verse 2. The words holy or sanctified or saints basically mean the same thing. 
It means people that are different. People that are set apart. They're unlike anyone else. They have a unique place in God's scheme of things. We're different if we're saints. Now, the difference doesn't lie in the fact that we're always going to meetings or we dress a certain way or we say praise the Lord all the time or we have a special kind of vocabulary. It lies in the fact that we're different morally. We're patient people. We're tolerant. We're faithful to our responsibilities. We don't get our feelings hurt when people don't uh, approve of us or don't thank us for something that that we've done. Uh, We're understanding. We're kind. We're morally tough. That's, uh, That's the difference, you see. Someone has said there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are the saints and the ain'ts. And the saints are the people who reflect the character of God wherever they go. That's their difference. That's what makes them unique. So that's his word to the church. They've been set apart in Christ Jesus. They've been called to be different along with all of those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That includes us as well as the folks in Corinth. And then finally in verse 3, his brief salutation, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in Paul's day, grace was not a religious term. We've invested it with all sorts of religious significance, rightly so, because the apostles do, but but in Paul's day, it was uh, it was almost a cliche. Uh, when you met someone, you said, Karasumin, grace to you. It just means may you have a good day. May you have some favor that you don't deserve. It's very much like the cliches that, that we use when we meet someone or when we leave someone. Have a good day. But what Paul does is invest it with special meaning. Because good days, he knows, come from the Lord Jesus. He's the one who makes things right. Uh, He takes the common things of life and invests them with with new and fresh significance. And so Paul takes this term grace and he he relates it to to what we have in, in Christ. What Paul is saying is this. Everything that God has, every gift that is at God's disposal is available to you even though you don't deserve it. Even though this past week you have failed a number of times and you feel disqualified to receive what God has for you, even though you may feel guilty and remorseful about the week, grace is available. It's always there. It comes through Jesus Christ. Um, if you go up here to Lucky Peak Dam, you see this vast... Uh, amount of water that's contained behind the dam, it's it's a good illustration of what grace is. Uh, If you were a rancher living down downstream and all you had was desert, but you had a, a, a canal or a pipe, pipeline straight to the base of that dam, and you needed water, just needed a glass of water to uh take a drink, and you turned on the spigot, there's adequate water for that need. Or if you wanted to irrigate your back 40, you could just let a little more water out and it's available to you. Or if you wanted to flood your entire ranch and float a boat, you could because there's plenty of water there. Well, that's what grace is. Everything you need, every resource 
that God has uh, that, that God has is available to you. And so this is Paul's desire for the church, that they may experience the grace and peace that comes from God. So this is his introduction. Paul is identified as the author of this letter, and his calling is that of an apostle. The church is identified as a collection of saints. They're the recipients of the letter, and it's God's grace and peace that makes it possible. Then in verses 4 through 9, you have a word of thanksgiving. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed among you. The word confirmed here means proved to be true or authenticated so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now Paul picks up uh, again the theme of grace, and he gives thanks for the grace of God which enriched them in all speech and all knowledge. The word speech here is the word for word. They had the word and they had knowledge. And they were rich. Now he's not talking about the, the knowledge that the individual believers had, the content that they had tucked away in their minds. He's talking rather about the gifted men that were given to the church the men who taught them. This was a uniquely blessed church. It had been founded by the Apostle Paul. He had taught them for 18 months. Peter apparently had some teaching ministry in this assembly. And Apollos, the gifted young orator and prophet from Alexandria, had preached there. And so they were rich in teaching resources. They had everything they needed. It would be somewhat like being in a church where Chuck Swindoll and Dr. Jack Mitchell were the teachers, and uh, Billy Graham and Bill Bright headed up the evangelism program, and Ted Ingstrom was the minister of administration, and and uh, you had everything you could possibly ask for in terms of resources. That's the sort of situation that, that Paul describes here. They were rich, immeasurably rich. And secondly, we're told that there was the expression of certain supernatural gifts. In verse 6, even as the testimony concerning Christ was authenticated among you. In these early days, when the gospel was first being preached by the apostles, there was frequently an outbreak of miraculous gifts. Uh, Speaking in tongues, the capacity to interpret those tongues, healings, miracles, things that that supernaturally authenticated the uh, the ministry of the apostles. If you turn back to the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews describes that authentication this way. Chapter 2, verse 2, he's contrasting the law with the good news in Christ. And he says in verse 2, if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, 
and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, that's the law received on Mount Sinai, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, that's where it began, he taught, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, that's the apostles. This, by the way, indicates that the writer of the book of Hebrews is not one of the apostles. He's a second generation believer, someone who was taught by the apostles. The Lord spoke it, the gospel first. It was confirmed, same term you find in 1 Corinthians, confirmed to us by those who heard the apostles. And in verse 4 says, God also bearing witness with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So God had sent into this church not only the prophets, but authenticating miracle workers and healers and those who spoke in tongues and other manifestations of, of supernatural gifts that verified the message of the apostles. And not only that, in verse 7 we're told that they lacked no gift. They had people who had the gift of helps, the gift of administration, the gift of giving. All of the gifts, the spiritual gifts described in, in the New Testament were found in that church. They were not lacking in any gift. Awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall confirm you to the end. Same word that's found in verse 6. Prove you out to be true. Blameless in the days of our Lord Jesus, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So they not only had teaching resources, human resources, spiritual gifts, they had God Himself at work in their midst. God had reached into that church and He had laid hold of lives and He wasn't going to let them go until He had confirmed what He had set out to do. Paul says in another place, He who has begun a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. Once he starts to work in our life, he doesn't stop until the day we see the Lord Jesus. And John tells us when we see him, we'll be like him. It'll be an instantaneous change. We'll be blameless in the day of Christ. Notice he doesn't say sinless, but blameless. Because what God sees is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I have a friend who... Um, had a sort of a hard life growing up, did a lot of things that he wishes he had never done, became a Christian late in life, and uh, he says when he gets to heaven, he knows that some of his old cronies are going to say, Ted, what are you doing up here? He says, I'm going to point to Jesus and say, I'm with him. And that's what Paul is saying. God is going to see to it that he finishes what he's done. Christ has done the work and now he's going to apply the results of that, of that work to our life until we stand perfect before God. What a wealthy church. They had teaching. They had, uh, they had all the gifts. They had God at work in their midst. Um, this is a church that had everything. I was talking to Jeff Utes last Christmas, and he was telling me about a little boy uh, in his class. He asked him what he wanted for Christmas. Timmy said, everything. Well, this was a church that had everything. They had uh, great teachers. 
They were well taught. Their notebooks were full of facts. Uh, they had read uh, H. Publius Lindsay's book, The Late Great Roman Empire. They had a bookstore right across the street where they could pick up Peter's latest epistle. They had a Christian radio station. They listened to tapes. They were well-versed, instructed believers. They had it all. But this was a church that was in shambles. They were absolutely in moral shambles. As you read through the book, you, that's the unmistakable impression that you gain. They had everything, but they had nothing. Because they weren't acting on any of it. Paul says in another place, you have received the grace of God in an empty fashion. I'm not an analyst of evangelical trends, but the thing that grieves me more than anything else in, in viewing the, the evangelical church is our tendency to major on facts. We've got all the facts down. We know the truth, but it hasn't entered our lives. hasn't changed us. hasn't made us any different than the world around us. We're orthodox in our theology, and we can draw all the charts and make all the distinctions, and we have all the labels, and we know all the terms, but it hasn't affected our lives. And this is what was happening in in the city of Corinth, there was bitterness, just general meanness and honoriness in the church. They didn't love each other. They just didn't care. When they went to their love feasts, as we will be doing tonight, where there is a... That's the supreme opportunity to, to share our lives with one another. They were treating it like a pagan orgy. They were elbowing one another out of the way so they could get to the food first. And Paul says, some of you even get drunk at these things. They just didn't care. And they were broken up into little schisms and clubs and groups and we're saying, we're the people and wisdom will die with us and we have all the truth. And they were cutting one another off and cutting one another down. Critical, harsh, carping, judgmental spirits. Paul takes six chapters to talk about the divisions in the church and the and the dreadful things they were doing to one another because of their their party spirit, their divisiveness, their lack of love. There was blatant immorality. There was a man who had some kind of immoral relationship going on with his stepmother, and they just glossed over the whole thing in the spirit of tolerance. They weren't doing anything about it. He was just living openly in immorality, and nobody ever said a thing. Paul says, you're so smug, you have so much truth, you're so proud, you ought to be ashamed of yourselves. church was riddled with every form of vice, lovelessness, carelessness about spiritual things, but they had all the truth. They had it down pat. They could reproduce the teaching of the apostles, but it had never touched their heart. Uh, James describes that as demonic. Uh, you know the passage, he says, you say you believe the truth, so do the demons. In fact, they believe it to such an extent they tremble. They take it very seriously. I'll imagine, if you will, that we, that we could bring a demon in here and interview him this morning. I don't know what he would look like. Probably like one of us. 
there he would stand, and and I would say to him, tell me, do you believe in the inspiration of Scripture? Oh, yes. Do you believe in inerrancy? Oh, yes. Do you believe in the deity of Christ? Certainly. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world? Yes. That he was resurrected? Without doubt. And he would have all of his eschatology straight, and all of his doctrine would be orthodox, and his theology would be impeccable, but he's still a demon. He's never changed his character, never made him anything less than a demon. And that's why James says, if, if that's the sort of, of behavior that characterizes our life, it's demonic. To know and not to do is not to know at all. We don't know anything. We have to act on the truth. And as we study this letter to this Corinthian church, we need to ask ourselves the question, to what extent are we like the Corinthians? The, the issue is not what truth we have, but what, what truth has me. Does it possess me? If I can justify sin in any form in my life, then I'm just like the Corinthian church. If I can justify a bitter, resentful spirit, if there's someone in my past that I simply will not refuse, will not forgive because of the way they treated me, maybe they did some terrible thing to you and you just can't forgive them. You'll never forgive them. To the extent that we justify that behavior, we're just like the Corinthians. Or if we justify resentment or lust or any sin, and we're like the Corinthians. Or to what extent do we idolize men? Paul takes six chapters to talk about that problem in the church, putting men on pedestals, saying this man has the truth, and then shutting their ears to everybody else, feeling that somehow by following this man and getting his system down, they would have power and, and, and they're un, they were unwilling to listen to anyone else. Paul goes into great detail to show that that's the thing that's causing the divisions and destroying your unity and your lack of love for one another. Or if we refuse to be reconciled to someone, to our mate, for instance. Some of you may feel that your marriage is beyond repair and you've just given up. You're not even going to try anymore. Or perhaps one of your children, somewhere along the line, has disappointed you, done something that, that you didn't want them to do, and made you feel ashamed, and you shut them off, and you won't call them or talk to them or open your heart to them. To the extent that we justify those things, then we're just like the Corinthians. We are, we've received the grace of God in an empty fashion. And Paul's point throughout is that we have the means to act. We have the resources. We have the tools. We have God in our midst. We have everything that we need to act on the truth. Peter Marshall says we're like, Christians are like deep sea divers designed, encased in diving suits, designed to go fathoms deep, marching forth to pull plugs out of bathtubs. What a travesty. 
when we have everything that God has in his possession, all of God, to be what God intends us to be. Let's take stock as we, uh, as we read this book and as Paul instructs the Corinthians. Let's ask ourselves to what extent are we like the Corinthian church and have we received the grace of God in an empty fashion? Let's pray, shall we? Let's take a moment to take stock now. First, just think about yourself and where you are in relationship to the Lord. Maybe there's some long-standing fantasy that you that you nurture and you know it's wrong it's destructive or maybe there's some element of laziness in your life there's something you know you should do and you just don't want to do it it's too hard let God put his finger on that and receive his grace to act according to truth or maybe there's something in your family uh, life or in your home that that you ought to be doing. You've been asked to do it, and you know you ought to do it, but you've put it off. Remember what James says. If a man knows what's right, he doesn't do it. To him, it's sin. Or maybe in your business, you're involved in some unethical practice, or maybe even just shading things a bit and justifying it by saying that this is another era and the truth of Scripture doesn't really apply in this hard-nosed, competitive environment that I'm in. Dear Father, thank you that we've been reconciled to you. That once we were, we were characterized by all the things by which you described the Corinthian church, but now we have a new quality of life. And we'd like to live out that life in the world. Be what you've called us to be. And we thank you that all that we need is available to us. There's grace that's adequate for every need. Thank you for that. That great fact. In Jesus' name. Amen.